So we'll open our Bibles this morning to the Gospel according to John. And we will begin reading in verse 23. And we'll read down to the end of the chapter to verse 33. The Word of God says, And in that day you shall ask Me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whatsoever you shall ask the Father in My name, He will give it you. Hitherto have you asked nothing in My name. Ask, and you shall receive, that your joy may be full. These things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs. But the time cometh when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs, but I shall show you plainly of the Father. At that day you shall ask in my name, and I say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you. For the Father Himself loveth you, because you have loved Me, and have believed that I came out from God. I came forth from the Father, and I am come into the world. Again, I leave the world, and I go to the Father. His disciples said unto Him, Lo, now speakest thou plainly, and speakest no proverb. Now we are sure that thou knowest all things, and needest not that any man should ask thee. By this we believe that thou camest forth from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour cometh. Yea, is now come, that you shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things have I spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Amen. Amen. Chapters 14, 15, and 16 form one series of conversations that our Lord is having with His disciples just before He goes to Calvary. He told them that He was about to leave them. Leave them alone and go back to His Father. He told them that there was still much they needed to know about the true God, about His salvation, and about true Christianity. And then He told them that He would not leave them alone, but that He would send the Holy Spirit. And that when the Holy Spirit came to be with them, that He would come as a Spirit of truth who would guide them into all truth and bring the things that Jesus Christ had taught them to remembrance. He told them that the world would hate them, but that they would live fruitful lives and they would enjoy God's love, they would enjoy something of God's peace, they would enjoy something of God's joy as they labored for Him on this earth. In the last verses that we have in chapter 16, He told them that their relationship with God was about to change. They would come to know God as Father. They had been speaking to God as the Son of God on earth. They would come to know the true God as their personal Father. And they would have direct access to the Father in heaven. They would have direct access into the Holy of Holies in heaven. They would have the privilege of praying to Him in the name of the Son of God and they would have the assurance that their prayers would be answered by God Himself. He instructed them to ask in His name that their joy might be full. As we saw last week, in the face of the loss of their Master, in the face of their lack of understanding of true Christianity, in the face of the hatred of the world, in the face of the daunting task to take His message into a world that hates them, in the face of their own weaknesses, they were instructed to pray and they were assured God would answer their prayers to help them. God would answer in such a way 
as they would have joy in their service for the living God. And finally, he told them that the time frame in which he was speaking in that day would begin after the resurrection and would not end until the second coming of Christ. In that day, this is what's going to take place as we saw last week. That brings us up to verse 27. After instructing them and bringing them to this place where they were to pray and seek the Father, he now says in verse 27, For the Father loveth you. Praise the Lord. There are three statements made here, and I want to read them all, but we're going to break this message down, at least the first part of it, into these three points. For the Father loveth you, because you have loved me, and have believed that I came out from God. These are the three statements. The Father loveth you. Our Lord confirms His Father's love for His disciples. Our Lord confirms His Father's love for His people. He has been telling them that He loves them. In chapter 13, having loved His own, He loved them unto the end. He went to the cross. He has been telling them about His love for them. He has and has been mentioned in the Gospel of John that the Father loves the world, but He has focused up until this point of His ministry uh, has been on His love for them. Now He directs their hearts and minds to the God of heaven and earth. The Father in heaven loves you. And so I want to address that this morning as I break down this chapter, this verse for us. What is the nature of the Father's love for His children? That's the question. The Father loves His people. What does that, what does that mean? We have some ideas. A lot of times we have ideas that are unbiblical about the love of God. What does it mean? It begins with God. It is the Father's love. It is the Father's love for His children. And so it is God's love expressed toward them. God is eternal and everlasting. And so God's love is an everlasting love. That's where we begin. This is the nature of the love that God has for us. Jeremiah addresses this. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3, Jeremiah says, The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have loved you before the foundations of the world. I love you in time and I shall love you when there is nothing but a new heaven and a new earth left. And all of this is gone. It is everlasting, having no beginning, having no end. It is as eternal as God is. Everything about God is eternal. His holiness is eternal. His grace is eternal. Everything about Him is eternal. Because God is. God is eternal. John Gill, commenting on Jeremiah 31, the statement, I have loved thee, says, I, who am the great God, the Creator of the ends of the earth, the King of kings, the Lord of hosts, God of infinite purity and holiness, God who does whatsoever I please in heaven and earth, and, and the Lord that changes not, have loved thee. And not love only, but shall hereafter have loved. Not for some time past only, but from all eternity with the same love. With an everlasting love. A love from everlasting, which does not commence in time with faith or with repentance or with some new obedience. These being the fruits and effects of it, God's love, but was from all eternity as appears from the eternal choice of the persons loved in Christ. From everlasting to everlasting and will endure from everlasting to everlasting without any variation or change. Nothing can separate us from it. End quote. Wow! Wow! 
What a definition. It is an everlasting love. My Father loves you. The Father Himself loveth you. What kind of love is that? It is an everlasting love. What else is revealed in the Scripture about this love the Father has? It is a redeeming love. God's love for sinners was what motivated God to send His only begotten Son into the world that He might save sinners from their sins. Not Jews only, but Jews and Gentiles. Save out of every nation and kindred and tribe and tongue and family. Save sinners. What motivated God for that? To do that? To accomplish that? It was His love for sinners. We read in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, but God commended His love toward us. Paul writing to Gentiles and Jews. Paul a Jew writing to Gentiles. To, for us, Jews and Gentiles together, God commended His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Here, this expression of God's love for sinners is an expression of redeeming love. The love of God who sent His Son to purchase a people at Calvary's cross. The love of God which sent, who sent His Son to save them from their sins by taking their place at Calvary's cross. It is everlasting. It is redeeming. It is a love that draws or calls sinners to Himself. A calling love. A love that draws us out of darkness into light. A love that draws us out of death into life. It is a love that draws sinners from their sin all the way to the Son of God who saves them from their sins. We read this again. Jeremiah 31 verse 3 where the Scripture says, The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, because I have loved you, therefore, I have drawn thee. I have drawn thee in loving kindness. I have drawn thee. You see, God loves His people, but they are sitting in darkness. They are bound in death. They are bound in sin. And God comes to where they are and draws them, calls them by the Gospel message, drawing them all the way to the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is an adopting love. God's love for His people motivated Him to adopt them into His very family. John speaks of this in his first letter, his first epistle, 1 John 3, 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. What strange, unique, peculiar love that God would bestow upon us, upon those who have believed in His Son, that we should become part of His family. To John, that was amazing. The word behold, opening up chapter 3, verse 1, was look at this. Don't take a sideways glance and go on your way. Don't take a nod to its existence, but focus on this. Look at this. What an amazing thing God did when He bestowed His love upon a sinner and adopted him into His family and made them His son or His daughter. It is everlasting, redeeming, calling, adopting, protecting love. The loving eye of God is never removed from not even one of the children of God. Go with me if you have your Bibles open to Isaiah 49. Isaiah chapter 49, we want to read verse 15 and 16 and focus on what God is saying here on the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 49, 15, 
God asks a question and, and then gives an answer. Isaiah 49.15 Can a woman forget her sucking child that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget. Yet will not I forget thee. Behold, I have graven thee on the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. I will not forget you. I have graven you on my hands. I have written your name on my hands and in my heart. I cannot forget you. I must have, I will have compassion upon you. God's protective love is a love that can never be forgotten by God. God cannot remove His children out of His heart. He is the one who has put them there. God cannot remove His children from His hand. He is the one who has engraved them there. He is the one who has set His affections upon them. He is the one who has secured for them a place in His heart and in His family. A woman might forget her child, but I will never forget my child. A woman may indeed give up her child, but I will never give up one of my children. They are graven on the palms of my hands. They are bound to me in my heart. We have been engraved upon the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ also upon the hands that bore our sins to Calvary, upon the hands that were nailed to that cross at Calvary. Many years ago, a man by the name of Charles Wesley wrote a song. That song is entitled, Arise, My Soul, Arise. And here is what it says. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears before the throne. My surety stands. My name is written on His hands. My Savior stands before the throne. My surety, my assurance that I will gain an entrance into heaven stands before the throne of God. My name written on His hands, bore at Calvary our sins. He goes on to say, He ever lives above for me to intercede, His all-redeeming love, His precious blood to plead. His blood atoned for every race and sprinkles now the throne of grace. Five Bleeding wounds he bears. One, two, three, four, five. Five bleeding wounds he bears. Received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive him, they cry. Nor let that sinner die. Hallelujah. The wounds of Christ, written, this is poetry, poetically written here, cry before the throne of grace, before the Father. That sinner cannot die. I have died in his place. That sinner must be forgiven. I have borne his sins for me. His names are written on my hands. In the last verse, he writes, My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for His child. They may forget their children, but I cannot forget my children. He owns me for His child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. That's a summary of what I preached last Lord's Day. The Father Himself loves you. I love you. I have written you on the palms of my hands. 
those hands have not only borne the bloody spikes at Calvary, but it is those hands that gather up the people of God. Those hands have gathered up His children, the very ones that He has died for. Those hands gathered up the 99 and made sure they were safe and went out into the wilderness to find that last one because He will not lose, not even one. Those hands, as the Scripture says in Isaiah 59, 1, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. The Lord's hand is not weakened or in some way uh, uh, restrained that it cannot save. God's hand is able to save God's people. Again, in Isaiah 41, verse 10, He says to His people, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will hold you up, uphold you. How? With the right hand of my righteousness. God, having once gathered His sheep, hold them. Hold them up as they go through this life. Uphold them, securing them, caring for them, ministering to them, providing for them, protecting them. And then laying hold on their hand on their deathbed and walking them into the very presence of the Almighty. I have engraved thee upon my hand. The hands which have been engraven with our names gather us up. The hand that has been engraven with our names keep us secure. No man is able to pluck them out of my hand. John chapter 10, verse 27, our Lord says, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me, and I give unto them eternal life, and... Amen. Because all these things are true at the same time. And they shall never perish. Why? Neither shall any man pluck them out of My hand. The hands of the Almighty have lifted us up. We sang this morning how He lifts us up and carries us in His bosom by the right hand of His God. Carries us. We see in the Scriptures how the hand of God comes and fetches us out of darkness. Fetches us out of death and draws us into light. We see in Scriptures how we are brought by the mighty hand of God into the saving relationship with our God through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We see in the Scriptures how the hand of God secures us. No man can pluck them out of my hand. Praise the Lord. No angel, no demon, nothing that has been created or ever shall be come into existence can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. My Father Himself loves you. Loves you. And He loves you, Jesus said, because you have loved Me. He loves you because you have loved Me. Speaking to the unbelieving Jews in John chapter 8, our Lord said, if God were your Father, you would love Me. Now saying to His disciples, the Father loves you. If God was their Father... What is true? They love the Lord Jesus Christ. If God is your Father, you love the Lord Jesus Christ. If you love the Lord Jesus Christ, you love the Father. These things are true in the Scriptures. There are some who don't love God, and that's okay. That's where we were before we were saved. But then God saved us and gave us a new heart, and now we do. Now we love Him. Now we do love Him. Now we do love the Lord Jesus Christ. And God looks down upon the Lord Jesus Christ looking at His disciples that evening says, the Father Himself loves you because you have loved Me. Those who love the Lord Jesus Christ also have God as their Father. And they also have been loved by God who is their Father in heaven. Our Lord is saying, your love for Me indicates or shows 
the fact that God is in fact and indeed your Father. If God were not your Father, you would not love Me. Because you love Me, God is your Father. And because God is your Father, having loved Me, He loves you. What is the nature of the love the child of God has for their God? We have seen something of the nature God has of the love of God toward us. How does our love for God show up to Him? Our love for the Lord Jesus Christ is first and foremost a response to God's love for us. 1 John 4.19 John who wrote these words in John 16 also wrote 1 John and in chapter 4 verse 19 says we love Him because He first loved us. We love Him in response to Him first loving us. The more we understand about the love of God toward us, the more we understand the truth revealed in the Word of God about how God has loved us from everlasting to everlasting, the more we gather up this information and the more it becomes more than just head knowledge but heart knowledge, the more we understand about it, the more love we have for God. The more love responds back to Him. He loved us because We love Him because He first loved us. And that's true of every Christian, whether they're a baby or a child or a young person or a mature Christian. Of every child of God, it is true. They love God because He first loved them. The love of God for us existed before we loved His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. For God commended His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Sinners without a love for Christ, and yet God loved us. So here is this previously existing love for us without even any knowledge of it until the day God saved us. And then we begin to realize the love of God for our soul. What that teaches us is this, and how we respond to that is this. As we understand, first, that our love for God is a response, then the more we know of it, the more we love. As we understand that He loved us before we loved Him, this causes us to humble ourselves before our God and to express before Him a humble love. I don't know if it has gripped you yet, but I hope it does. That God loved you while you were yet in your sins. Now I understand theologically and doctrinally we have a grasp on that. But the reality of that settling down in your soul. When God could have been just to put you in hell. Because you have chosen to sin against Him on purpose and yet set His love upon you to send His Son to die for you. I don't know what that does for you, but it humbles me. How can it be so? Why should it be so? And part of the expression of a child of God's love back to their father is a humble form of love I can't believe that He has ever loved me, much less has continued all the days of my Christian life and has promised to do so all the way into glory. It humbles us. That's how it's expressed. There's another truth here. The cause of God's love for us was His choice to love us. God did not look down through the corridors of time and, and say, oh, there's, there's Pat Horner. He's doing a little bit of good. I think I'll love him. No, no, no. What God said is none did understood. None did seek Him. All of them went astray. All went out of the way. There was none good. There was none righteous. In that state, God said, I'm going to love that man. I'm going to love that man. 
I'm going to love that woman. I'm going to love that child. And that love is going to be bestowed. It's going to have an effect upon their life. I'm going to send my son because of that love for them. And I'm going to have him die in their place. I'm going to judge my son in their place. He's going to pay for their sins and I'm going to come to that sinner in mercy and then I'm going to draw him to myself and to his, my son. And I begin to realize from the Scriptures that my love for God is a response. And then I realize that His love for me was His choice, not based upon anything He saw in me or any merit or anything that I did for Him. And understanding that produces a thankful heart. Oh Lord, thank You. Thank You. I do love You. I, I am humbled to, to think that You would have any sense of loving me. I am thankful that You chose to love me and to save me from my sins. Out of the heart of a child of God, we respond back to His love in a humble, thankful expression of love for our God. But there is another aspect. And that is this. God's love for us is superior to our love for Him. Everyone that's a Christian knows that. I just put in one sentence what you know and understand in the depths of your soul. That God's love for me is so far superior for my love to Him that I can hardly say the words, I love you. Because I understand His love for me is so vast and infinite. And my love for Him is so shallow at times. It is superior to our love because it is God's love. God is the source of His love for us. Therefore, it is eternal, as I said, but it is also impeccably holy, God's love for us. It is infinite, having a vastness that cannot be comprehended by us. It is unchangeable and consistent. It is always kind and generous and good. And it is so much more. His love is consistent with His character. That's why I have pressed upon us as believers to study, to know our God. Who is He? How has He revealed Himself in the Scriptures? So that we can know something not only about Him, but about all His attributes, so we can understand His workings toward us in a deeper and better way. Our love for God is true. There's no question about it. It is true. Even though it is finite, limited to our little space and time and and energy. It is sometimes changeable. It is inconsistent sometimes. On Monday, it might be here. On Sunday, it might be here. On Wednesday, it is, it is inconsistent, depending upon our circumstances a lot of times. Changeable, inconsistent, variable, and all the time mixed with the frailties of this flesh. That's our love for Him. And though God's love for us is superior, and though our love for Him is not, yet, listen, our love for Him is always received by Him. I've heard so much preaching on us loving God used to condemn the sinner because they don't reach the standard of the preacher. Because he'll never preach above his standard instead of preaching the standard of the Scriptures. Or some dear saint reading a book about a man who goes to the mission field and dies on the field and says, I have nothing even close really resembling that kind of love. And they condemn themselves. Now, we ought to examine ourselves. There's no question about that. Every aspect of God's work in our soul needs to be examined and searched out. No question about it. But in John chapter 21, in verse 15, our Lord God Himself asked Peter a question. John chapter 21, verse 15. In fact, He asked the question three times. And all three times the response is the same. The question is the same and the response is the same. In John 21, 
In verse 15 we read, So when they had dined, Jesus saith, or saith unto Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these, more than the rest of these disciples? He, that is Peter, saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. And then he said, he saith unto him, Feed my lamb. Now, here's where the Word of God, words of God become very important. And I, I've preached on this several months ago, but I'm going to remind you again this morning. When Jesus said, Lovest thou me? The English word love is agape. It is this love that is superior, that is high. Do you love me, Peter? Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. But he didn't use that word. Because you know, Peter's just coming off of a pretty bad falling, right? And he's just now, after three days later, standing before the Lord who raised from the grave. And he says, Lord, I do. I do love you. I Phileo. I, I love you. Now I want you to notice here. Do you love me? I do love you. Second time. Do you love me? I do love you. Third time. You love me. Lord, Thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I do love you. Are you getting that this morning? Are you grasping that this morning? After Peter said, I love you, in response to this, what did our Lord say? Go feed my sheep. Wow! You get busy doing what I've called you to do. Wow! I don't know what that does for you, brethren, but for me it humbles me and makes me thankful. God Himself asked the question. Peter responded, and the only way Peter could respond, I do love you, but on a different level than what you're talking about. And I want you to know I do love you. And God comes back and says, Good! This is what I want you to do. He received that. God did. He received that. But what about those who don't have the ability to feed the sheep? Do they not love Him? Because here we have one of the apostles confessing that His love is down here. Well, if His love is down here, where's mine? It, it, it must be somewhere down here, you would think. It's probably right here at this same level where Peter's at. But you think, well, if Peter loves him like that, then, oh, when I think about myself, I've got to be below that. I've got to be under the carpet here. Uh, I, I can't express even what Peter said. What about those who don't feed his sheep? Well, we have another command in the Scriptures. 1 John 4.21 1 John 4.21 And this is this commandment have we had from Him that he, that he who loveth God loveth his brother also. There it is. Here is the commandment of God. You love God, you love your brother also. That's the response to God's love. That's our response to God's love. Well, how do I do that? Well, what does the Scripture show? There's a woman in the book of Acts, chapter 9. Her name is Dorcas. Peter is... She dies. Peter is called upon to raise her from the, from the dead. The widows, they're crying. They're showing the clothes that she, showed, that she sewed for them. Dorcas expressed her love for the widows in the church there at Jerusalem by sewing clothes for them. Does she love? Does she love God? Does she love her brother, her sisters? Just sewing a, a dress up for somebody. Some some of you have some great talents in that area. But you know what if you what if you don't have the talent to sew? Uh, don't put me on a sewing machine. Okay, not going to happen. I can't do that. Well, here's another example in the scriptures. 
Do those who stand before our Lord in Matthew 25 love God? Do those who stand on His right hand, His sheep that are ushered into His kingdom, do they love God? They did what they did as unto the Lord, unto the Lord that they loved. Well, what did they do? What does our Lord say to them? If you want to look at it, you can go with me to Matthew 25, 34. And we'll read down to verse 40. And I won't comment much, but I want you to see something here. Our Lord is speaking to His sheep. Our Lord is speaking to those who love Him. Our Lord is speaking to those who are loved of the Father and having been loved of God are responding to that love. Then shall the King say to them on His right hand, Come ye blessed of My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Matthew 25, verse 35. For I was hungered, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. And then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee a hungered and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink? And when saw we thee a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? And when saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? And the king will answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of my brethren, you have done it unto me. Because you loved my brethren, you loved me. Because you loved me, you loved my brethren. How did that show up? A cup of cool water is sufficient for God to testify that this one loves me. A meal given to a hungry passerby. A visit to the sick, the widow, the orphan. Expressing God's love in you coming out. What if I can't preach? Can I still love God? Well, you can sew for a widow. What if I can't sew? Can I still love God? Well, you can fix a meal to someone who's housebound. What about somebody sick? Could you go visit them? In the villages of Tripura in northeast India where my wife and I ministered, there were illiterate people there. And I would instruct the saints all the time. There were elderly people who, who didn't have the privilege of having glasses and who could no longer see to read anything. If they could read at all, most of them were illiterate. And a handful of Christians, only a handful in this whole village, could read. And so I would say to them, take your Bible, go house to house. They're not much, they call them huts. Go hut to hut. Go sit with that elderly woman and read the Scriptures to her. She can't read. She doesn't even have a Bible in her own language. Go sit and read the Scriptures to her. She might be a Christian attending assembly, but she can't read the Scriptures. She's illiterate. She's listening, but she can't read for herself. Go sit and read the Scriptures to her. And they began. And then I gave them a little bit more instruction, and they began. And I began to give them some more instruction. And the next time we were back, there was something different about that village. Something different. It wasn't so dark as it was before. It wasn't so pressed down with sin as it was before. God's people began to love God. And because they loved Him, they began to look out upon their neighbor and to love them. If they were hungry, they would take them food. If they were blind, they would read the Scriptures to them. They did what they could do. These are poor people in backward villages doing what they could do. Expressing their love for the God who had saved them from their sins. Their Father loved them because they loved the Lord Jesus Christ. And because they loved the Lord Jesus Christ, they began to love each other and they began to love those that were not as blessed as they were. How is the love of God revealed in our life? 
It is the love of a father for his children. And we, as I said last Sunday, are encouraged and in fact desire to express our affection for our Father with Abba, Father, Father. It is a love that cares for His children, who uses brothers and sisters to help each other, God caring for them. It is a love that protects His children in every situation. We may face some situations that we have not yet faced, that our brothers and sisters in other countries have already faced. We will find out in that day that God's love has not changed. That God's affection for us has not changed. His children are loved. And an expression of that is He provides for His children. It may not be everything you want. It may be today's food. Give us this day our daily bread. Most of us have not had to pray that. It may come to that if it does. The promise of God is, I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their seed begging bread. Whatever God may bring into our way, God will take care of us. His love corrects His children. If they turn to the right hand or to the left, He brings them back onto the way that they should go. His love secures their future. When God saved me in 1975, I was told I was going to heaven. Good, good information, good hope. But that was not settled and rooted deep in my soul. It was after learning the Scriptures and falling and being restored and falling and being restored and turning this way and being turned back and turning this way and being turned back and to watch the hand of God in my life that after all these years I've seen, God has secured my soul for heaven. God has secured my soul for heaven because God has loved me. Father Himself loves you because you have loved Me and have believed that I came out from God. I came forth from the Father, He said in John, 11 and verse 28, John 16 and verse 28, and am come into the world. Again, I, I leave the world and go to the Father. Here, He has given a summary of what they believe. By this, He declares that He knows the heart of His disciples. He says, I can see into your heart. I know you. I know what you believe. I know if you believe. And I know what you believe. Now these disciples were lacking in much of what we already understand. They did not know or understand many things. They would learn that later. But they had believed something about Christ. He had been sent from the Father He had ministered on earth. He had brought a message of hope to sinners. Now He is going back to the Father. That much they knew. That much He had declared to them. In their heart is faith that He is the Son of God sent from the Father to save sinners from their sins. In their hearts they believe Him to be the only Savior of sinners sent from the Father to save sinners from their sins. And in their heart, they believe God's salvation can be found in no other place than His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. They have been convinced that much they believe. They have so many errors. They have so much they need to learn. But that much they believe. That much they are confident of. And God is standing before them, the Lord Jesus Christ, and says, this is what you believe. And then He says, uh, His disciples said in verse 29, this, by this we believe that Thou camest forth from the God. Verse 29 and 30, His disciples said unto Him, Lo, now speakest Thou plainly, and speakest no proverb. Now we are sure that Thou knowest all things. And needest not that any man should ask thee, 
By this we believe, because you know all these things, because you've revealed what is what we believe in our heart. We believe you. We trust you. The Lord had revealed Himself to them. He knew their hearts. By a supernatural revelation of truth, they had, He had embedded in their hearts certain aspects of the truth of God. Now He looks past the man, all of them that will betray Him in only a few hours, and looks into their hearts. And He says, I know what you believe. And they come back and say, because you know what we believe, we believe you. We trust you. And in verse 30, 31, it goes on to read, Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Our Lord responded to their declaration of faith by revealing to them that their faith would be tested. Do you now believe? Listen carefully, brethren. A lot of times the Word of God searches us. Do you really believe? Do you really love? A lot of times the Word of God searches us. But let me instruct you here regarding this. Our Lord's words were not meant to cause them to doubt the truth of their faith. It was real and they knew it. It was real and more importantly, He knew it. Our Lord's words were not meant to frighten them so that somehow or another they might lose their faith. No! Our Lord is convinced of the reality of their faith. Their faith is in Him. And He knows it. Instead, He is warning them, do you truly and really believe? I know you believe, but do you truly and really believe? Why does he ask this question? Well, he asked the question so they might fully examine themselves. They declared that they had a true and unshakable faith in Jesus Christ. They had a true faith. But they did not have an unshakable faith yet. They thought they did. Their declaration was our faith is going to endure to the end. But our God knows that in a few hours their faith is going to be tested. And by the way, dear child of God in this room, God always tests our faith. Always. Not to prove that it's real. He knows what's real and what's not in you. But so that we might come to grips with where we're at and pursue yet further this matter of faith or love. At the point we sometimes feel the strongest as Christians, we should take a moment, examine ourselves to make sure that we're not leaning on the arm of the flesh instead of trusting the living God. It may be that God may be preparing trials for us that will in fact test our faith. But it is not meant to shake it. It is meant to test it. And so He says, Behold, the hour cometh. Do you believe? Truly, the hour cometh. Yea, and now is come. He's only a few hours away from Calvary at this point when He makes this statement in verse 32 that you shall be scattered. Every man to his own. That is, every man to his own house. And shall leave me alone. But I'm not alone. My Father is with me. And the Lord reveals a time coming very soon when they would leave Him. Where they would go back to their houses. They would go back to their fishing. They would go back to their jobs. You know, He had to go fetch them, right? After the resurrection. You do remember that, right? He had to go fetch them. You go tell them, I'm going to meet you here. Calling them. Bringing them together again. You will see me die. And you will think my work is finished. And that it has been defeated. And you will return to your own house. The days will be dark. And you will think I'm defeated. 
You will see me die. And then when you meet, you will meet in fear and not peace. You meet to worship, but you're afraid. Not meeting in peace. When He comes into their presence, the first Lord's Day, what does He say? Peace. Because they're meeting in fear. That's what's going to happen, He says. And that's not to discourage Him. That's not to discourage us. Because if faith is real, no matter what circumstances bring, God is going to bring us back to the place where we're supposed to be. And listen how he closes this chapter. These things I have spoken unto you. I've told you the truth about everything. Listen to what I have to say here. These things I have spoken unto you, that you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good courage. I have overcome the world. Despite your present ignorance as disciples, despite the untested faith that you are about to see tested under severe circumstances, despite the hatred of the world towards you, I want to give you a promise right now. I have overcome the world. I have overcome it. I am victorious. Whatever it looks like to you when they nail me to that cross and it's dark and the earth is quaking and the rocks are breaking. Whatever it looks like when they take me down and put me in a tomb. Whatever that looks like to you. Remember, I have overcome the world. It doesn't look like it, does it? It doesn't look like God's victorious. He's laying in a grave. There's a Roman soldiers all around. The Jews are now looking to find the disciples that follow Him to kill Him. It doesn't look like God is victorious. Everything looks like that the evil one has been the victor. But despite all of those looks, God loves them. And despite all of what it may look like, God has engaged Himself to be for them. And despite everything that may look like in those days, God has promised, I will be with you. God has been presently with them. God has been present with them there, though they believe God to have forsaken them. And God will forever be present with them. And in fact, the text ends in chapter 16, Not only have I overcome the world, but in those words is, I am victorious. It doesn't look like it while He's on the cross, does it? It doesn't look like it when He's in the tomb. But I am, I am victorious. He is victorious over sin. Victorious over Satan. Victorious over death. Victorious over the grave. In three short days, you're going to see that. He is victorious over everything that may seek to put an end to His purposes on the earth. He is victorious over everything that is hindering His people from being saved. He is victorious over everything that hinders the people of God from living for God on an earth in a world that hates them. He is victorious. I have overcome. That doesn't sound like the words of a man who is defeated, does it? I have overcome. Sinners, you hear that outside of Christ. Since our Lord said, God who cannot lie said, I have overcome the world. It is better if you follow Him than following the world. Since he said, I defeated the world, it's better for you to come and follow him than to follow a defeated enemy. Since he said, not one of my defeated enemies shall ever be able to rise up to be victorious. And the last enemy that he will defeat is death. It is better for you to come to the victorious side. 
Very for you to repent and turn to the Savior who is able to save you from the uttermost to the utter, from your sin to the uttermost to glory. Better than to stay in a world that's defeated and is bound by the judgment of God. Better than serving sin and Satan who are defeated enemies. Better to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, child of God. The world is screaming in our ears in the days in which we live. The news, the papers, the radio, the screaming in our ears. We are going to defeat them. We are going to kill them. We are going to push them down. They are not going to be able to meet. They are not going to be able to say what, they, what the Scripture says in their pulpits. We are going to put an end to this thing called Christianity. Well, I beg to differ. Because there's a king sitting on a throne in heaven who laughs at his enemies and holds them in derision and says to his children, don't forget, I've overcome the world. Don't forget, dear child of God, He's overcome the world. He loves us. He has overcome the world. He loves us. He is victorious. So shall we be. Let's pray.